0: mama ne he do jamo pe ro me do jamo pe ro no me he do jamo ma lai gai 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 ma ro
2: Welcome, everyone. This is Ian, and we're on the Paradigm Shift. We've got a big line-up today. It's a big show. We're continuing our series on local government in the lead-up to the... 28th of March elections, only three weeks ago, three Saturdays to go now. And today's show, we are talking to the local councillor for the Gabba Ward, Jonathan Shree, and we traverse a number of issues. His own personal background, what brought him into politics. We talk about developers, which is a big issue in West End and South Brisbane. We talk about engagement with community and new forms of radical communication, democratic rights, land rights we talk about the ethics of being involved in struggle about housing problems and many more issues before we go there i think that we need to highlight the fact that there's a big event coming up this this weekend it's international women's day on march the 8th and of course this is one of two days in the calendar of working class people in brisbane One is May Day on May 1st, and the other is International Women's Day, which was originally called International Working Women's Day. And it focused on the emancipation of women, as we know the suffragettes, even more importantly, the struggle of working women. There are many issues facing women today, economic, social and political the women's movement has been one of the strongest social movements in Queensland and that comes as no surprise because of the reaction and repression women have faced in this very state over a long period of time. It is a day also of celebration for Struggles One and for a concentration on the struggles ahead women are under attack in the home and on the streets. We need to stand up in solidarity and struggle for radical change uh, so that there is equality for all women and for all members of the human race. You can choose yourselves which events you go to over the weekend. Myself, I'm going to um, a women's conference tomorrow out at Northgate. Um, You can look that up. There's a lot of interesting speakers. You can look that up on Facebook. There's also um, a rally on Sunday organised by IWD Brisbane Mianjin. So if you look that up on Facebook, you'll see that. And then there's another one which is on. Uh, that's that one's that starts at ten in Emma Miller Place. And she, of course, is a famous revolutionary, really, in Queensland political life. And the other one is an international Working Women's Day rally that's happening at one pm at Queens Gardens. And all are welcome. Just bring your voice, and that's held by Feminist Action. To get us in the mood for today's show, because we will be talking radical local government in this show today, I can assure you, here is Rivermouth with a song called Propaganda. Don't tr- You can't trust the LNP. Do not doubt the
3: government's resolve. Do not doubt that we are going to see this thing through. If you've done nothing wrong, you have nothing to fear. If you've done nothing wrong, you have nothing to fear. If you've done nothing wrong, you have nothing to fear. We are the government. We decide what's best for you. Dear Queensland, your sat nab's out of date you followed the wrong road And now we're turning into a police state is democratic disruption Two-party system, double corruption Declatising while facilitating corporate greed Funding cuts for any NGO that disagreed. Out with the old and in with your friends is fine I'll hire your son and you hire mine This is Queensland, where no man is carried We like our blacks in jail and our gays unmarried If you protest, we'll lock you away you have the freedom to do what we say But you can't trust the LNP Mate, you don't trust the LNP Our democracies come to this Where people think that well, they can say and do anything To try and win an election Everyone's getting needier, greedier We are trashing the environment But the mainstream media's like No worries mate, it's good for the economy the Courier Mail ain't the paper that it used to be When rich white men get to set the agenda Free speech don't mean much for the rest of us I know you're not evil You think you're doing the right thing But it's frightening, disheartening How shit you are at listening This is Queensland, we don't allow bitching We like our kids Christian and our women in kitchens Immigrants on welfare are lazy sloths But if they find employment, well they took our jobs Leaders of Queensland, you give the homeless grief And you're dumping half a mountain on the Barrier Reef you close Doors and open casinos. That's where the green goes. I always knew you were trouble. And now the pot's overflowing. Are you power hungry or just plain stupid? Either way, we won't water the weeds. You're because you can't trust the LNP. Right? You don't trust the LNP. Want me like a fly. If I don't comply, send the cops in to tase me. Question the system, they'll label you crazy. If you don't believe this is history repeating, then Google corruption and Joe B. Oki Peterson. They changed campaign finance rules to make it harder for the minor parties running while they housing criminals like tools in mining. Pop that bubble, locking kids up While legal aid is underfunded, locking kids up Even though it causes more trouble It's all part of the incarceration business model Done nothing wrong, nothing to fear That's what the Nazis told the Jews And yeah, I know Campbell Newman's nothing like Hitler But his propaganda sounds eerily familiar This is Queensland You better dress formal, four-wheel strip search Anyone who doesn't look normal The poor get poorer while we're whining and dining, lining pockets with profits from Unsustainable mind in short sight And now the pot is overflowing Are you power hungry or just plain stupid either way We won't water the weeds you're sowing Cause you can't trust the LNP Mate, you don't trust the LNP You can't trust the LNP Mate, you don't trust the LNP Wake up Queensland Smell the cat shit in your Disease stinks like it's venereal No one thinks for themselves, there's no critical inquiry Distracted by the bright lights of river fire We swallow propaganda and say thanks for the medicine Swallow propaganda and don't ask questions We swallow propaganda And we will get what we deserve
2: You're on the Paradigm Shift. We heard the song Propaganda by Rivermouth. You would probably recognise the voice as being that of Jonathan Shree. And since he's a muso, we decided to play some of the music of bands that he's been in. That one, that band was Rivermouth. With um, some great lyrics there, you can't trust the LNP. Well, that's certainly true. Um, now, Jono, let's see if we can... Line you up here for what is now the the opening gambit by by him in this series about the local government elections that are coming up and what they're all about. Um, he 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 begins here by talking about his background, and then we get into a big facet of that was the this current fight against developers and their unreasonable. Um, building going on right here in Brisbane. Let's go to the interview now. Can you please introduce yourself? My name is
1: Jonathan Sree, I'm the Green City Council representing the Gaba Ward. When did you move to the Gab Ward and why? I first moved into the Gaba Ward around 2010. I'd previously been living around Indrapilly, so I grew up in West Chamberside on the north side and then basically bounced around inner city suburbs in the inner west around Turinga Drapilly, and then Highgate Hill West End I was drawn into West End and Highgate Hill to be close to the live music scene I was working a bit as a musician and was really attracted to the kind of counter-cultural movements that were there on the ground in West End um, so yeah in a nutshell that's why I wanted to be closer to the music and art and rent was cheap. So you were in
2: Indooroopilly when you were a student and then you moved to West End to
1: be part of the cultural... Yeah, and it's funny because growing up in West Chermside, I used to go to jams and gigs in the valley and not as much in, in West End. And it was only once I started getting more involved in reggae music, I discovered all these great reggae bands based out of West End and started to go to gigs at places like The Forest and Tongue and Groove and those sorts of venues. But your training is as a lawyer? Yeah, so I studied law at University of Queensland. I also studied arts. My arts majors were Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander studies and journalism and mass communication. So I have honours in law, a Bachelor of Arts and did a graduate certificate in creative writing. I never actually practiced as a lawyer. I worked as a clerk during law school for a few years and decided I didn't want to work in a law firm. So when I finished, I ended up working in essentially community work. So I did a little bit of time up in Arnhem Land in remote Aboriginal communities, working kind of in youth work roles and dispute resolution roles. And then also did a bit of event organizing and community work back here in Brisbane. Can you describe the geography of the Gabba ward? So the Gabba ward currently includes the suburbs of West End, Highgate Hill, Dutton Park, Kangaroo Point, South Brisbane, East Brisbane, and Gabba. The boundaries are being redrawn. Peranda? is part of the suburb of Gabba. Okay. yeah. Yep. So the boundaries are currently being redrawn for the 28th of March election. So after the 2020 council election, the boundaries of the Gabba ward will shift. And so the suburb of East Brisbane and the Baranda locality of Wollongabba will shift into the neighbouring Cooparoo Ward. So the Gabba Ward geographically is shrinking a bit. So all that will be left is kind of about a third of Wollongabba, Kangaroo Point, Dutton Park, Highgate Hill and West End and South Brisbane. So we're losing the eastern half of the Gabba Ward to Cooparoo Ward. And traditionally the western side of the Gabba Ward has been a lot stronger for the Greens.
2: You have represented residents and ratepayers of the Gabba ward since 2016. The Gabba is one of 27 wards or 26 wards in Brisbane City Council, which makes this, uh, you know, a distinctive
1: situation. Are the people who live in it different from residents in other wards? No, I don't think the residents of the Gabba ward are fundamentally different from residents of other wards. I think there are a few factors that make the Gabba ward a little bit different and a lot of that comes back to history and geography. And Inner city? Yeah, so certainly the fact that it's an inner city neighbourhood and has a higher proportion of artists and musicians and activists and perhaps more importantly a higher proportion of renters and short-term residents I think is quite significant. But particularly suburbs like West End and Wollongabba also just have a really long, deep history of countercultural movements and subcultures and and activism and it's those decades of community organizing and activism that have essentially laid the foundation for a greens councillor with a fairly radical policy platform to be able to get elected it's not like i came out of nowhere there's this long history of activism and community organizing that made it possible to win in 2016 previous labor councillors tim quinn and to a lesser degree
2: helen abrahams they kept the developers out of West End. They kept them out of Buranda, the Gabba and South Brisbane. Mm. Now there is an explosion in high-rise apartments, changing the character and demographics of these suburbs
1: possibly forever. Mm. Um, What brought this about? What's happened? So the construction boom really started ramping up several years before I got elected, kind of around 2011, 2012, post the 2011 floods. Campbell Newman rezoned several large chunks of the gab Ward for high-density development, and that sort of unleashed the floodgates of a new wave of high-density construction. But there were other commercial pressures at the same time, where as the mining boom tapered down and other industries around Australia were not as profitable more and more capital investment flooded into the inner city property market so the rapid construction boom we saw on Brisbane's inner south side was a symptom of broader national and global trends where rich investors were looking for safe places to park their money and so that has dramatically changed the built form of the Gab Award in terms of there's a lot more high-rises but it's also caused mass displacement of lower income longer term residents as well as a major influx of newer residents who demographically in some ways don't necessarily seem that different from residents who were here previously it's still a very young electorate still a very high proportion of renters but in fact the proportion of renters seems to have grown in the last few years so latest estimates, the GABA is is somewhere around 60 to 65% of residents are renters rather than owner-occupiers. One previous
2: seismic change in the GABA was the building of the Southeast Freeway,
0: mm.
2: which carved a barrier right through the centre of thriving migrant communities, mm. Russians, Italians, Greeks, just to name a few. Another was Expo 88. Mm. Uh, this was when the developers got their foothold. Mm. At the same time gentrification was going on and these are all challenges to a previously multicultural community that was tolerant and an affordable place to live. Can the inner city become
1: affordable once again and how? I think there's a risk of romanticising the past a little too much because it's not like 30 or 40 years ago West End was more tolerant and and less racist in fact i would argue that racism has always been a problem in in brisbane and particularly where new migrant communities or long-term aboriginal residents come into conflict with um white australian community groups and i think there's a danger of looking at a fixed i think there's a it would be a mistake to take a fixed in time view of of history and say oh there was this beautiful utopia of multicultural inner city cosmopolitan bohemianism that was suddenly destroyed by expo 88 and the freeway projects and successive waves of gentrification in fact really the the invasion and the first wave of gentrification started way back in the 1830s when white invaders first came to this side of the river and Really, when we talk about the changes of the, that have happened in the Gabo War, the biggest changes are the conversion of jungle and, and dense forest into housing and commercial pre- precincts. So, I think I'd I'd sort of question the or the implication of the question a little bit. I think really the Expo eighty eight and the freeway projects and the road winding projects loom large in our cultural memory because they've happened in the last few decades, but actually. There were previous waves of development and gentrification that also forced out community and that's kind of been a function of the growth of the city and the inner south side in particular for well over a century now. So. Expo 88 and the Road Widening Projects definitely had a huge impact on carving up community, but it was they were one chapter in an ongoing story of displacement and commodification of property. As a student, I
2: used to pay $100 a week rent mm. in a four bedroom house, share house of course. Mm. We socialised our poverty. Mm. Nowadays, when I just looked up the papers the other day, uh, rents more than $600. Mm. The houses that we lived in were fairly modest. Um, mm. We could never afford to, to buy them, mm. um, but we could certainly rent there. And now many of the homes and the apartments are being advertised for over a million dollars. <laughs> so how, how do you get to an affordability for the poor people that have been pushed out?
1: Yeah. So the construction boom has definitely led to increased property values and, and rising rents. And the, really the only way to counteract that is with public sector investment. The government needs to be building and delivering more public housing and community housing and also introducing stronger renters' rights and, and rules that limit to unreasonable rent increases. So part of what makes suburbs like West End and Gabba special is that for a long time people on lower incomes could still afford to live in these walkable neighbourhoods, in these inner city communities that were close to services and cultural hubs. And so, to preserve that culture and that identity of a suburb like West End, we also have to pre- preserve a significant proportion of affordable housing stock. And unfortunately, the property industry narrative that increasing the supply of housing is going to re- improve affordability hasn't actually held true. We've seen that Even though the construction of new dwellings has outstripped the rate of population growth, property values and rents have still risen.
3: Books at Stones is an independent, family-owned bookstore specialising in Australian authors and stories. With also a range of medical, nursing and alternative medicine textbooks and many more interesting selections for you to choose from. Come on down to 360 Logan Road at Stones Corner. See www.booksatstones.com.au for more info. Don't forget to flash your Four Triple Z subscriber card for a ten percent discount. Books at Stones, a proud sub discount outlet of Four Triple Z.
2: You're on the paradigm shift. This is Ian. We're talking local government elections, and specifically today, we're concentrating on the Brisbane City Council election. There are 26 wards up for the vote, um, There eight, 19 of those wards are held by the LNP, only five by the Labor Party, there's one Independent and one Green and we're talking to a hotly contested seat called the Gabba Ward and the local councillor is the Greens, Jonathan Shree. Let's go back to his talk now. and. Um, where he addresses a number of, of crucial issues that follow on from that talk about the developers. You challenge the concept of
1: West Village in Mollison Street in West End, mm. why? West Village is a mega project that dramatically gentrified Boundary Street and closed off opportunities to redevelop an old industrial site more sustainably and more equitably. So, West Village really is symptomatic of a broader problem, but also on a specific level, just represented a huge lost opportunity because it was a 2.6 hectare site, which had had multiple lives previously as industrial factory users and an ice cream factory, and then as a hub for artists and musicians, and then more recently as markets and a major live music venue. So that site could have been redeveloped with a significant pr- component of public housing, with large public green spaces and community facilities like a community centre and a library, etc. Instead, the state government called in the project and approved it for uh, high rises of up to twenty-two stories, which uh, doesn't the project doesn't include enough public green space, is very light on in community facilities, and crucially doesn't include any public housing or rent controlled housing, and that's the fundamental concern with these kinds of projects. It's not that density is necessarily a bad thing, and in some cases the, the landscaping looks quite nice and it's not necessarily terribly designed, but when you look at the economics of it, these projects have a tendency to force out lower income people and to to make it harder for those diverse communities to continue living in the inner city. and. It's been interesting since the project was approved to watch how West Village and even recent residents of West Village, some of them, have been trying to apply pressure to change the broader character of Boundary Street. So I don't want to generalise about the residents who've moved in there, but we have had one or two complaints from residents of the very expensive new apartments about the presence of Aboriginal people on Boundary Street, and we've had West Village developers themselves applying indirect pressure through the West End Traders Association to, in inverted commas, clean up the street. And so the presence of these gentrifying mega projects does have a broader impact on the culture of the street and the neighbourhood they're, they're located within. And I think, in general, that's not particularly good for the broader community. According to
2: the stats on the West Village website, Mm. Uh, West End, that's just West End, Mm. has a population of 10,000 people Mm. and only one third of those people own the dwelling in which they live. So that's over 6,000 people are renters and they're at the mercy of the money men, Mm. the real estate agents, the banks. How can community be
1: established when the basis of the dwelling is to be exploited? Mm. Yeah, the treatment of housing as a commodity directly undermines the potential to form and and preserve community connections. And I think resisting that in an era of um, commodified and speculative investment in housing is really, really difficult. The low-hanging fruit, and I think the highest priority, is to push for stronger renters' rights because stronger renters' rights will protect or help protect Um, vulnerable renters from being exploited and evicted unreasonably. It won't fix the problem, but it will definitely put the brakes on some of the most egregious abuses of power. And stronger renters' rights will also arguably put a little bit of downward pressure on property values, which in turn will cool down the housing market and help rein in some of this rampant profit-driven development. Above and beyond stronger renters' rights, though, we also really need to start pushing for more public housing construction in the inner city, including inclusionary zoning where developers are required to actually hand over public housing as part of their new developments. And that's something the Greens have been pushing quite strongly. But now that the construction boom is sort of reaching the next stage of its cycle, we have a lot of existing housing stock that's sitting empty in the inner city and so a new demand is emerging which is the demand for a vacancy levy so that investors who buy up this stock and then just leave it sitting empty are penalized financially and are incentivized to actually get tenants in and we're seeing that in other cities around the world as well where the first stage of the construction boom is this massive increase in the supply of overpriced apartments that no one can afford to live in, and then the second stage is a contest of what happens to those apartments now that they've been built, and so I think a vacancy levy will become increasingly important in that context.
2: Since being elected you have experimented with different ways of engaging with people in the Gabba ward. Can you explain what methods you have used and where they have been
1: more successful? So we've tried a, a range of processes to empower the community and decentralise decision making. Um, one of the most longest, longest running processes has been our community voting for local park upgrades, where I have a discretionary budget for public space upgrades of several hundred thousand dollars a year. And I, instead of making up my own decisions about how that money is spent, we use a community voting process where residents make suggestions on what projects they'd like to see built and then can vote for their priorities. We've also had other collaborative design processes such as for a park in Wollongabba, where we held a small community festival and then multiple workshops and small group discussions to collectively design a concept plan for the park. And in other areas of council decision-making, we've used community voting to name streets to make decisions about where basketball courts and community gardens should go. And also to make decisions about how I I spend my time and energy in terms of advocacy. So running large surveys that are very, very detailed to uh, get a really good pulse of what residents actually want and want me to prioritize. And so my decision-making is guided by the results of those community votes and surveys alongside that we've held a lot of public forums and policy conferences that have a strong focus on participatory decision making where residents are actually actively involved in shaping policy and shaping the the values that sit underneath those policies and so Rather than saying, here's this one process that's the perfect way to engage the community and empower the community, we've been experimenting with a range of different processes that are to some extent adapted to the specific decisions being made. And I think the most effective processes have been the ones where the residents feel and understand that they have meaningful control. Where residents feel that they don't have the final say, they might give a little bit of feedback, but they're not going to get actively involved. Whereas if you hand over decision-making power to residents, you generally get a greater level of engagement and a better quality of decision-making as a result. City Council allocates you 2 full-time staff. You've
2: rejected so that there are four part-time staff. Mm. Now, what you've just described strikes me as being a a, a real burden on yourself and Mm.
1: people working here. You've done it for four years. Mm. How are you going to manage? Yeah, this is one of the big tensions because doing a good job of decentralising decision making power and empowering the community is actually really time intensive and resource intensive. Often it's quicker for me to just make up my own mind about something as opposed to me and my staff running a, a broader consultation process. And so we're continually having to strike that balance between wanting to do a better job of community decision making and the fact that we only have two full-time staff and myself. So part of the benefit of having multiple part-time staff has been, we've been able to run this office less like a traditional ward office with a strong focus on service provision and more like a community organizing hub. So the ward office loans out a lot of equipment to community projects and community campaigns. We deploy our local grants budget strategically to support activist projects that align with our values and we're a little bit more proactive in helping coordinate community campaigns as opposed to just responding to them. And so I think really we've taken more of a community development approach to representation as opposed to a purely representative approach.
3: that echo when you walk past the storm with a drain like deep down that dark tunnel there's some secret force you can't contain can't explain simultaneously sacred and profane Rise up out the gutters Mago 3 house, Awesome people About to bust Your window shutters i rebel warriors Going to shit On your Mercedes And the ladies At the op shop Got homemade paint bomb grenades We are the 99.9% And you're taking up Too much oxygen. we started asking questions Once we get momentum Won't stop again Obsessed with building A bigger engine Meanwhile your ship is sinking Claim system's inevitable But it will be better If you check your thinking We are the firelight Hell to an aerosol can Middle of the petrol stations with your dumb triggering an internet. no We're Grindstone and just to tread water You won't let us drown, but you'll hold us down Why the hell should we support you? Pick the blue team, or the red team But don't change the rules of the game Whole damn well could be eaten in a day By a single candle flame Screw your system we got a louder one Curing all symptoms With a bass amp on full power Son, I know we make you nervous Cause we threaten your monopolies You can confiscate our microphones But you won't make us commodities Cut the power Now memory your borders, forced into competition shoebox towers, noise abatement orders, silence in suburbia the revolution is live tweeted, victory roots rip, cobble and you will be defeated When the squeal of guitar feedback shatters every mirror in this city, and the humidity rising up from our dance floor causes tropical thunderstorms Here come the hailstone. <laughs>
2: You're on the Paradigm Shift. This is Ian. We're talking radical change in local government and we're presently speaking with the Councillor for the Gabba Ward in Brisbane who turned the tables on the two major parties and won the the 2016 election. Will he repeat it and will people endorse his comparatively radical agenda? Let's go back now and hear Jonathan Shree about democratic rights and land rights. In 2011, Lord Mayor Quirk drove the Occupy movement out of Brisbane CBD. Mm. We sought refuge in the Gabba Ward, initially with permission from the traditional owners in Musgrove Park. Mm. And in 2019, Lord Mayor Shriner attempted to do the same to groups protesting against government failure to act on climate change. And in January of this year, a crowd of 10,000 people assembled and marched around Brisbane CBD. Are we seeing a resurgence of democratic rights in the city? Or behind the scenes, is City Hall planning a fight back against peaceful assembly in places like King George Square, Radcliffe Place, Queen's Park, Emma Miller
1: Place? So there are multiple overlapping and somewhat contradictory trends in this city at the moment. On the one hand, we seem to be seeing upsurge of direct action, civil disobedience, mass protest on the streets, and I would argue that my election has had a small part to play in supporting a lot of that. Uh, On the other hand, though, we've also seen the increase in commodification and control of public spaces and crackdowns on protests, and a lot of that, I think, sort of was ramped up in the 2014 G20 summit, on Camel Newman and got stepped up again with the 2018 Commonwealth Games and now has become sort of normalised as part of this security culture and this rhetoric of public safety. The council administration has really, in particular, targeted Extinction Rebellion but other groups as well in terms of limiting their rights to public assembly and peaceful protests. And I think that has that has been an escalation that sort of does start to harken back to the Joe Biocchi-Peterson years. But what's been interesting is that the Labor state government has also followed suit. In previous eras, uh, even if the LNP had control of council and was starting to act a little bit undemocratically, at least the Labor Party was a little bit more assertive in resisting that. Whereas this time, both Labour and the LNP have been in a race to the bottom to outdo each other in suppressing rights to peaceful process, protests and our basic civil liberties. So it's a very difficult landscape to be operating in, but we've also had some significant wins, such as the court case where the mayor tried to take me to court to, present, to prevent me running a peaceful protest march through the city at peak hour. And, the Chief Magistrate found in my favour and essentially upheld the power of the Peaceful Assembly Act of 1992, which was introduced as a result of previous waves of protest defending that right to peaceful assembly. So I think it was an important moment in that um, we, ha- we now have a very clear recent case precedent which says that activists are allowed to march through the city streets in peak hour on a weekday and block traffic. And that's, that's protected and permitted under the Peaceful Assembly Act. Brisbane still does not have
2: an Aboriginal cultural centre. Mm. This was the dream of Uncle Sam Watson and many Aboriginal leaders before him, Beryl Wharton, Des and, and Debbie Sandy, the Ruskers, all their families, in a word, Brisbane Blacks. Mm. They want an Aboriginal cultural centre and mm. they want it here in this ward. Mm. Many non-Indigenous people like ourselves uh, support that. It offers a way forward for Aboriginal artists and the emerging Murray youth to show their work in an environment of Aboriginal control and management of the arts and culture. Former Lord Mayor Campbell Newman had a nest egg of millions of dollars, some say 11 million, to undertake this project. Do you know what has happened? I'm not asking you to Hmm. spell out where (laughs) the money is, but...
1: If you do know, I'd like to know. <laughs> but what steps can you take to support the project? Hmm. So generally, when a project doesn't go ahead, the money is just realloc- reallocated back into general revenue and then reallocated through the budget. So it's not actually very easy to say, okay, the millions of dollars that were allocated towards the Cultural Centre in Musgrave Park have instead been put into this bank account or instead have been spent here. Really the millions of dollars that were allocated to the Cultural Centre seem to have just gone back into the consolidated revenue budget and have then been reallocated. Um, so it's yeah, it's difficult to say that, oh, the money has gone to this specific place. Essentially the problem is that money which was allocated is no longer allocated. So are um, we back to square one with money? Essentially, yeah. It's not like there's any sitting somewhere waiting and identifying to be spent on this project. Um, it's yeah i i think there's a really strong case for both council and the state government to be put in funding towards this project Um, the state government should i think be a big player in the funding process but council also needs to play a role i think one of the challenges that has made it difficult for progressive public servants and even perhaps progressive elected representatives to push the project is a lack of certainty and clarity around who can speak on behalf of Brisbane Blacks and what decision-making body or what community entity would run a collaborative design process to lead the project. Because my view, and I think the view of a lot of people, is that the project needs to be led by the Aboriginal community. Aboriginal communities should be the ones deciding what kind of building it is, how it's designed, exactly where it's located, exactly what its functions are. But it's not yet entirely clear what body that community can speak through and it's a function of the difficulty of anti-hierarchical and decentralised community networks trying to engage with a hierarchical state bureaucracy that isn't well adapted to understand the intricate intrapersonal relationships of Aboriginal community. Um, so I think really a, a next step and something that I'm very keen to support is to see some money put towards essentially community building and consensus building where the state and council support local Aboriginal community groups to come together, actually pay mediators, pay facilitators, pay people for their time so they can have those big meetings and achieve consensus on what they want. I think um, there's certainly a lot more people have in common. And I think even within the public service, there's a lot of support for the idea of an Aboriginal cultural centre. It's that the state is structurally incapable of working collaboratively with Aboriginal people in a way that's not patronising or paternalistic.
2: Paradigm Shift, and that was certainly a song. Mouldy Lovers, Six Foot Fences. We're getting a lot of feedback on the interview with Jonathan Shree. The one I just come, texted in was uh, Uh, language warning here. Holy shit. How good was that last answer? Can I hear Police Brutality by Combat Wombat? Love to play it, and we play it lots of times on this show, but we're going to be playing just straight up things related directly with this particular interview. And let's get into the last part of it now. And that is, we're really talking radical social change here and radical local government. Um, We're now going to move on to the question of affordable housing, child safety, and um, how to get renters' rights, basically, and sovereign rights. So let's go back to Jonathan Shree, the local... Councillor for the Gabba. One hour west of here, a group of West End urban planners uh, under the name of Plan C, is mediating a deal between developers and native title holders to develop a housing estate at Deebing Creek. This, of course, is sacred land with underground springs, Aboriginal remains, a history of continuous connection with the land. Mm -hmm. Um, Last year, you went to Deebing Creek to show solidarity with the original owners of the land, you were pilloried in the press and fined by council for misrepresenting yourself as a concerned resident of that district. You apologised and for a call that you made to MP Jennifer Howard. If you're not supposed to challenge developers outside your own ward, how is it that local urban planners residing here in West End get to represent developers who wish to steal the land from traditional owners?
1: Is that fair? <laughs> no. I think that's a bit of a Dorothy Dixer. But um, the, the broader context here is that a couple of years ago, uh, Aboriginal community members, mostly from Anala and, and Brisbane's outer southwest suburbs, came to me and said, look, we have a problem. These developers want to develop... Deebing Creek and that's an important site to us, what should we do, what can you help us with? And at the time I didn't know very much about the history of Deebing Creek, but I went out to Ipswich and I met with them and understood the issues and realised that because the project had already achieved so many of the necessary approvals, unless there was some pretty strong action pretty soon, the project would just go ahead and the bulldozers were pretty much ready to roll in, so I actually recommended to the Aboriginal community leaders out there that an occupation was their best chance of buying time and uh, perhaps achieving a win long term and so essentially supported them to set up an initial camp provided personal donations and funding in terms of portaloos and equipment to establish a base camp and then started encouraging other activists from brisbane and around australia to head out there and camp out and support the project um and by the project i mean the protest and the Um, I think Protest Camp now has been there for over a year, and in some respects, I think that's a success in and of itself, that people have held country for so long, even when the developers are ready to go. And it's quite obvious now that the state government is very sensitive about this project, and there are probably all sorts of conversations going on behind closed doors about where to from here. But I'm very, very clear that the development as proposed should not go ahead and that the land should be restored to the aboriginal community to to use as they wish Um, and maybe they want to develop part of it for housing in a way that works for them but that would be a very different kind of housing project to what these developers are proposing Um, but what i think is important is that just because this development project is technically out of outside the boundaries of brisbane city council doesn't mean it isn't directly connected to what happens within brisbane city Um, the entire southeast queensland construction industry and property market is all one beast regardless of where the council boundaries are and what happens in inner city brisbane does have an impact on the outer burbs of ipswich and vice versa Um, and this project will create more traffic congestion and it will create that same those same problems that are continually associated with suburban sprawl and so think it even just from a holistic urban planning perspective it's important for councillors in brisbane to understand and have a strong opinion about what happens out out in ipswich because at the end of the day it's all all very closely linked prior to becoming a councillor
2: you ran against jackie trad jackie trad is one of the major de- decision makers in politicizing deep creek by virtue of situating a railway near there mm. the land of course Mm. Has more value, and sadly for Aboriginal people, on land that becomes more valuable, it's that's where they lose the land. It gets taken off them. Mm. It's that's this the process of colonisation. Mm. It's been made even more politicised in that, AB Jennings has, in the lead up to the 28th of March, has threatened to send in their bulldozers at Grampian Drive there mm. in, the, in the lower camp, thus would destroy the natural springs, uh, take away the koala habitat, all of that. And they're doing that because this whole thing is a politicised thing. They see the game Mm. as it played out. Would you go again in the course of this campaign and stand with those Aboriginal people who currently locked the gates and blockaded
1: the... The builders coming in yeah i would I'd, I'd go if the elders called me and asked me to be there um i think what's particularly interesting about debing creek is that it has the potential to set a precedent for so many other sites around queensland and that's why it's become such a, a hot political issue it isn't just about this one site but if we can win this one and establish a precedent where The state government can't just sell off land that's particularly sacred to Aboriginal people and allow it to be privately developed. And if the state government goes so far as acquiring that land back and bringing it back into public hands, that sends a signal to other developers and other commercial projects all around the state that are also trying to develop on sites that are of particular significance to Aboriginal people. So I think it's a particularly important struggle to to keep in mind and to be supporting.
2: Mm. In a way, it's a repeat of the struggle over
1: Musgrove Park, which is still a stalemate. You know, mm. which, it's, you know. it's actually much bigger than Musgrove Park, because Musgrove Park was essentially already public land, um, whereas what we're talking about here is a demand for the State Government to take land off private developers and return it to the Aboriginal community. Um, so the ra- ramifications of that at a broader political level are huge. Stephen Creek was public land. uh, Mm, True, yeah. (laughs) They they
2: made it freehold and then they carved it up in a way that is is very opaque to most people. Um, On housing, the housing market is affected by a number of different things. Absentee landlords, private owners, tax concessions given to professionals with big salaries. But the state has its finger in the pie as well. The Department of Housing owns houses that it rents out as public and community housing. One of the hardest hit groups are the Aboriginal community because they're already under the surveillance of the Department of Children's Services who work in with housing, often against the interests of the Aboriginal families themselves. Have you any comment on the relationships between government departments and how they impact on lower income
1: earners who rent in your ward? From what I've seen within my own electorate, the department does not do a particularly good job of meeting the needs or supporting vulnerable people of colour and First Nations people who are dependent on government housing. Part of that is because there's such a chronic shortage of public housing stock that public servants and the department as a whole have become quite ruthless about evicting rather than supporting so-called problem tenants and looking for any excuse to rotate people out of public housing so that they can get other people in Um, but there's a broader problem here with how the state relates to First Nations people and I think it makes visible one of the major contradictions and flaws of left-wing politics which is that a lot of lefties and socialists and social democrats etc seem to think that it's enough that we have a a big role for the nation state that taxes the wealthy and provides all these public goods like public housing. But actually, when you look at how even in public housing First Nations people are treated, it's not a pretty picture sometimes. And and really, it shows that a non-Indigenous government is very poorly adapted to truly empower First Nations people and to respect their autonomy and sovereignty. And I think is probably one of the most compelling cases for I guess what you call anarchism or an anti-hierarchical politics that um, imagines the abolition of the nation state or rendering the nation-state irrelevant um, and I think we like in, in any other context I would be continually arguing for more public housing but when it comes to Aboriginal housing I would actually be arguing for Aboriginal community housing that's controlled by aboriginal organizations as opposed to directly controlled by the government um because i i just don't feel that these large bureaucratic non-indigenous institutions are well adapted to meet the needs of the people they're trying to serve thanks
2: very much for giving this time
1: up to community radio Mm. Um, is there anything you'd like to add just that i think it's really important that progressive people, open-minded people, activists, radicals don't underestimate the broader political significance of the coming council election. This is the first time in a long time that a council election has fallen in the same year as a state election and the results of the election, but also the stories which we tell about how to explain the results of these election, this election becomes very, very important in setting the agenda of the state election. So, for example, as a councillor who's been pretty radical and an outspoken and has actively supported civil disobedience if my vote rises that sends a very strong signal about the struggles i've been supporting to the political establishment at the statewide level whereas on the other hand if the greens do pretty poorly in this council election that might well be interpreted as a vote against radical politics and a delegitimization of the kind of platform i've pursued so I think the stakes are actually quite high, and it'll be interesting to see what happens on 28th of March. I think we should feel a lot of sympathy
2: for the voters of Bundamba, Uh, how to vote cards that they're going to get, Mm. mayoral candidates, uh, preferential voting system there, Mm. two council divisions Mm. being contested, and of course a state (laughs) government seat on the resignation of Joanne Miller with a with a, a compulsory preferential system. <laughs> so their minds are going to be really yeah. put to the test yeah. by democracy in action. <laughs> Full on. Thanks for the chatting. Thank you. Jonathan Sri there, uh, interview earlier in the week. He certainly laid down the gauntlet. It's v- radical politics versus mainstream politics in his ward um, and maybe elsewhere if there is a vote suggesting that the Greens can take some seats away from the LNP, uh, then, you know, it's an endorsement of the last four years of his kind of, of interpretation of what it is to be a radical. So... Tonight, um, there's a great show on. It's Foco Nuevo. We often talk about this, but it's their 12th, universi- uh, 12th anniversary. Their birthday party's up tonight, and boy, will the place be jumping at Kirilpa Hall. 7 uh, p.m., the, the door's open. We're going to get some great music by really three of the best... interpreters of Latin American music in Brisbane Um, Cachicamo Latin Harp which I'm going to play a medley from in a minute Duo Serenata and of course our local Jumping Fences Um, it's going to be a very interesting night it's uh, just to give you some of the details Kirilpa Hall 174 Boundary Street West End um and BYO and their light refreshments. Uh, it's $15 and $9 uh, tickets, so we're just about out of time. Sean is in there with a really interesting... I'm not going to steal his thunder. I'm not going to say who's coming on, but it will be good listening. So let's just go out with a, with a medley from Cachicamo, Latin Harp. See ya. <music>
0: BEST